it all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest is Deverell Mazarang, President and Chief Executive Officer of Farmer Brothers. Deverell is an innovative food and beverage industry leader with more than three decades of successful experience. He joined Farmer Brothers in 2019 as President, CEO, and a member of the Board of Directors, shepherding the company successfully through the turbulence of the COVID-19 pandemic. Deverell has led multiple turnarounds and global supply chain transformations in addition to providing strategic business guidance to corporations as a consultant. Prior to Farmer Brothers, he served as president and CEO of Earthround Farm Organic, an independent division of Danone. Previously, he was executive vice president global supply chain for Starbucks and also held leadership roles with Chiquita Brands, Pepsi Bottling, and United Parcel Service, where DeVerl started his career. He received his Bachelor of Science degree from Texas Tech University. Deverell Mazarang, welcome into the corner office. Uh, thank you so much. It's great to be here with you today, and thanks for the opportunity to spend some time in, into the corner office. Well, it's great to hear your voice again, too. We always like to kind of start at the beginning and, you know, would love to hear a little bit about your early years. Where did you grow up, Deverell, and, you know, what was your early family life like? Well, I was, uh, was born in the panhandle of Texas on Route 66 right. in Amarillo, Texas. Great. And uh, family uh, traveled around a little bit, or what did mom and dad do for a living? You know, it's uh, unique for for my sister and I. Uh, at an early age, I think I was uh, 11 months old, and she was, uh, you know, 23 months older thereabouts. Mm. And we were both adopted. And oh, wow. unfortunately, uh, or I'd say fortunately, we were adopted, and it got our start. And I think for for many that have walk that journey of being adopted, uh, it really is the first step uh, to put you on a successful path. And yeah. I can guarantee you for my sister and I, being adopted and having a family that cared about us and gave us an education opportunity is the two single things in life for me that, that have been the key to success. So, you know, never knew my early biological parents from a young age. Uh, we always had two birthdays, uh, right. our natural birthday. And then six months after we'd had our adopted birthday. So we were raised knowing we were adopted. Okay. And it wasn't until 25 years after, uh, you know, that we learned of our biological parents. And, you know, every state's a little different. And for us, 
it was a situation where my sister just kept sleuthing to figure out who the biological for lots of reasons, a lot to do with medical, but yeah. it, it was uh, it was an interesting start to life. And we'll have more to say on that as, as you ask me yeah. specific things about that yeah. journey and kind of how we got to where we are. Awesome. Well, that, that's a blessing, obviously. And I'm sure for whatever reasons that adoption took place, as you said, it set you on a path. What, what did your uh, parents who raised you do? Were they uh, uh, professionals? Did they work uh, out in the fields? I know the panhandle. Yes, my uh, my father, <laughs> my father was a uh, an electrician okay. and start on a line crew um, and then worked himself all the way up into uh, eventually the head of the union. And we oh, used to have great debates as I was becoming more successful in management about that. But I learned a lot from him in regards to his view of uh, kind of being the shop steward. And then he went into management in his last portion of his career. So he worked right. for the largest electric utility company there in the Panhandle of Texas, moved a couple of times, but then he wound up in Amarillo where their, their headquarters was until they were bought by... Um, New Century Energies, which is a bigger conglomerate as that industry then consolidated later in life. And then my mother was a executive assistant and for uh, a superintendent of a school district. But she had a a very interesting career from being a a probate judge to uh, a tax assessor and collector uh, to then the executive assistant of the school board. She worked in an independent school district there in the Panhandle of Texas in Amarillo. Was she degree? Did she go to university? No, she didn't. Neither wow. of my parents. They were all self-taught and, uh, yeah. you know, did a lot for my sister and I in terms of, um, you know, creating a, a great platform for us to, uh, to get educated, to to move on through life and, uh, you know, grew up and, you know, really good values in the panhandle. And, you know, parents really were kind of led us in a, in a path to, you know, rely on, you know, our faith and, you know, our ability to work hard and, and, and play hard. And, you know, we had a, a great, what I'd call a, a lower to middle-class life. Right. 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 And it's just the two of you, uh, the, your parents did not adopt anyone else or have any natural children themselves. No. Yeah. It's just, it was my sister and I, uh, until much later in life, literally not until probably, uh, 2013, uh, in that time frame, roughly, where we met other um, brothers and sisters that were either half brother and sister, or just recently found out that there was a as as twenty three and me is becoming such a, right. a common thing now. Uh, found a cousin, and then we found out we we had another full wow. biological sister that was a year younger than I. Wow. that we never met. And unfortunately, the really sad part of that story is she passed in October last year due to COVID with oh. us never getting to meet her. Yeah. And then the other half sister, uh, when we first met her two weeks after she uh, came in contact with my sister and I, we found out that um, she had uh, uh, terminal cancer and passed mm-hmm. two weeks after and never got to meet her face to face. And oh, my nice. my sister and her youngest son delivered the eulogy to a sister they never met. It was it was quite moving early on in life. So, you know, I, you know, life deals you lots of obstacles, and it's really how you how yeah. you take it. But you know, my sister and I grew up um, together. We didn't know any different. And uh, you know, yeah. my the sister that I just literally learned about, uh, fascinating as it may be, she uh, 
she got the the gift that we got and that was a gift of adoption mm. and uh she led a great life under her adoptive parents and raised three daughters and i'm anxious to get to know them uh, as time goes on i haven't met them yet and you know we'll do that in the in the coming you know weeks and months well family is how you define it isn't it Huh? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> my, 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 my adoptive mother used to always say, you know, uh, legally I'm more responsible than any biological parent. And that's absolutely. <laughs> that's fact. true. Yeah, that's right. And we put, we put adopted parents through a lot more rigorous, uh, review than biological parents do. Oh, you got that right. <laughs> Anybody can, um, you know, bear get together child. and bear a yeah. child, but yeah. not everybody can be a parent. That's right. That's right. Well, tell us some of the things, what were some of the influences that, uh, you know, maybe inspired you or that you recall from your, uh, your parents. Dream well, life? I think that's a, it's a great question because as, as I've gotten older, I've reflected on that and, yeah. and, you know, why do we become who we become, you know, and the influences around us and, you know, from a very young age, you know, not really understanding, you know, the early stages of our adoptive life. And, and that was really not talked about because it was all sealed by the state. Right. But as we learned later on, and then I reflected, it's clear that, wow, why was I such a hard driver? Why was I, you know, such a salesperson at a young age? And, mm. you know, a, a close friend of mine uh, who was a motivational speaker and author that I got to know several years ago, he, he gave me, uh, you know, a, uh, two words that really describe what I think people like myself and others that are in similar situations find that they don't even realize that kind of the human condition creates this with us is he's, he used a word, this gentleman's name is Morris Morrison. And he, he was orphaned twice, hmm. you know, uh, I guess in my case, I was orphaned once, but right. you know, he said, Deverell, the real key early on and, and probably the why or the way we are, is we have orphan mindsets and it's mm. like there's nothing in that context of an orphan's mindset that you're going to fight you you know you, you don't have a lot of people fighting for you so you fight for yourself and right. and those that, that you care a lot about and i think for me that really defined the early stages of my life and then i had a lot of great people given that our adopted families you know um put us in situations in our in our grandparents on both sides uh, our adoptive grandparents you know, they really were solid individuals. And, you know, my uh, adoptive father's parents were farmers, two mm -hmm. sections out in West Texas on the New Mexico border. And my uh, mother's uh, father and mother, they, they grew up in the ironworking industry during the Eisenhower era and built all the power plants and, and bridges and, and dams across the West. So he was a, you know, a hard-nosed German guy that really mm – -hmm knew how to build things and he was a man's man. And, and I, through, through those folks and my uncles and aunts, you know, we got a lot of great um, guidance. And, and I was always that kid that frankly, I got picked on a lot, picked on not from a standpoint that, you know, it was bullying, but all the going to say the, the middle-aged older gentlemen, I guess I was one of those little kids that were just kind of a man's man and they loved to tease me and put me through tests and <laughs> they'd hang me up on monkey bars and never let me uh, down until I fell. You know, they just made you tough. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's things like that that influence you at those early formative years that I think sure. are fascinating sure. as you look back. Were you a good student? No. <laughs> 
Oh, if, if we go too there, uh, too far into that area, people are going to say, you got to be kidding me. How did you ever get to where you're at? And there's a story there. And we'll probably have to talk a little bit more about that. But I was the proverbial. Uh, I looked at I didn't need to make more than a C as I make a C and get out. Why do you want to work so hard? Because I was a sports nut. I was a I was an athlete. And that's all I really cared about. What sports did you like the most? I was, I, I played football the most, uh, from, mm-hmm. you know, depending on what part of the country you're in, you could be called, you know, uh, you know, uh, YMCA to Pop Warner to, right, you know, right. all those kind of things, depending on where you are in the United States. But, you know, I, I did that from a very young age. I think my you know, second, third grade, you know, played football. Of course, yeah. you're from Texas. You play football. That's of kind course. of, and I also played baseball and I played track and, you know, I played golf. I did, I did a lot of things. I was on multiple, you know, sports. I was a multi-sport athlete, but I was never any good at basketball or some of those. And and then we limited based on the high school. We went to a small, uh, right. you know, 2A, 3A level school in Texas, which is, is, is on the smaller side. So football was how, you know, you, you defined yourself, defined in, yourself in high school and right. middle school and elementary and, and at least my did hometown. You, did you have aspirations of college sports at all? I did, and I did play college ball. Did. I did play Division One yeah. at, at Texas Tech. Well, believe it or not, Tech was my third school to arrive okay. at. That's why I, when you say was I a good student, it it has it goes all the way back to early on. I, you know, I was I was a special needs kid. You know, and I think that's partly the start I got in my life. And uh, you know, I don't think you appreciate the formative years, even you know, from being a you know a young child to growing up, but how that can have an impact on your learning. So I had one particular mentor, I think it was in second grade. I couldn't read. I'd got mm-hmm. all the way to third grade and they said, Roy, you're, you got a problem. So my parents spent a lot of money on educating me with, with tutors and the like. Tutors. And yeah. Yeah. I had an eye condition uh, that, that really was probably the thing that prevented me, but also had a, you know, a learning disability early on. Yeah. I overcame all that. And it was really because uh, this, this teacher, you know, Miss Jolly and, she took me under her wing and I went into special ed for probably a year and a half and did so well. I got out and got back out by my beginning of my sixth grade. So wow. from, you know, third and fourth and a little bit of fifth, I got back into the normal population by fifth and sixth grade. And, you know, that, that was kind of that formative, kind of that first mentor early on in life on the educational side that, you know, overcame a whole lot. And it wasn't that I didn't have the aptitude. It's just, I think, didn't have some of the skills to yeah. overcome those early things. Right. right. What about entrepreneurial things? Were you involved in some of those uh, growing up? I could sell anybody anything. And I think my <laughs> sister is the one, if she was on it, she would laugh because she would say, yeah, he used to take all my things. She used better words like he used to steal all my little <laughs> motors and out of my dolls or out of anything. And, and if he could sell it, he would turn it into something and sell it. But, you know, I sold newspapers. I sold True Grit. I sold, you know, uh, Christmas wrapping paper, light bulbs. I mean, we were poor. I mean, we, we, if you wanted to get something and you saw, Hey, I want to go to, to see my favorite football team in Dallas, Texas, because that's where I grew up. And I was a cowboy fan. I wasn't, my parents were going to afford to take me there. So I had to earn the trip by selling something. So I always put it to good use in terms of where I spent my money, but it was always on things that meant something to me that I, that I cared about. And it was never like frivolous, like just spend it on whatever, but I liked the nice things, you know, and I'd like to go earn the money to to get there so I could sell anybody, anything. 
And I was and a pretty good artist that. at the time. <laughs> oh, cool. And did you have some odd jobs uh, through high school, junior high? Odd school? jobs, yeah. I did. Uh, I worked. Uh, first job ever was washing tractor trailers at a truck wash oh my on, on Route 66 I-40, right? Yeah. And then I did floors. And boy, did I learn lessons there, you know, how to lay linoleum and, and rip up tile. It's it, it, I had some really tough guys that taught me. And, you know, you make those mistakes and you don't forget quickly that don't make that mistake. Don't leave the screwdriver on the floor and then ladle it on you and put a hole in it. And then you have to, it ruins the whole job. It, Pull it all up again. Yeah. yeah. And then you have to redo it. And then you're the one that's having to pay for it. So you learn those lessons early. So I think my most formidable early job was kind of, you know, while I was uh, in college, I had to work to, to make, uh, make it through. Right. And uh, I worked for what was then Handy Dan that became the precursor for what today is Home Depot. That was okay. a, the founders of Home Depot were the early guys in Handy Dan. Right. And I, I thought that was going to be my career. Yeah. Yeah. And, and did you uh, always have an intent to go to college? Was that something that mom and dad had out for you or was that kind of a self-motivated decision? You know, it was self-motivated. I think my parents, I was the first in my family anywhere that, that went to college and got a college degree. The key to that was it wasn't because I wanted to go to college. It's because I wanted to go play football. Mm -hmm. So back to a little bit of that football story, I I got recruited to play at Panhandle State in the, uh, in Guymon, Oklahoma, or what is right next to Guymon called Goodwill, Oklahoma. And that's a NAI school. We, we went to the national championship. It's, they do a playoff system, you know, top eight teams play each other until number one, we played the, the winner that year uh in the first round and and lost and uh it was just such a a difficult thing because i was in love and i wanted to get married and i wanted to marry my high school sweetheart that i'd known since probably nine years old and i was too far away from her and she was back in amarillo Hmm. i said you know what it's time for me uh to go back home so i went and uh interviewed and and worked my way in to go to west texas state to play division one i played a year there we got married just too hard to play division one ball, yeah. be married and work and go to school. Right. And, uh, you know, that lead me, leads me really to this point where I just went in and told my wife, Mindy, that day, I said, you know, we're, we're going to Lubbock. She go, what are you talking about? Well, I called the recruiter because I was going to join the military. <laughs> he looked at me like I had three heads and he said, you know what, DeRoe, you have two and a half years of school. Yeah, your GPA is terrible, but you know what? Go be an officer. You know, yeah. What's the closest ROTC campus? Uh, oh, it's in uh, Lubbock, Texas at Texas Tech. So I went down there, interviewed, and got into Texas Tech on probation because my GPA was so bad. And I tell you, in a in one semester, got off probation and then finished Texas Tech in engineering. Because remember, up to that point, I was just a general business major. Right. I didn't even know what I wanted to do. I was just taking classes to play football. And wound up going in engineering. It took me a year and a half to kind of catch up with my peers and then graduate with honors. So I think in life, what once you find out what your purpose is and what you really want to get done, it's amazing if you do the work, you can get there. And I'm I'm a classic example of going on probation to a top-tier Texas university right. and going on probation off on the first semester and then boom, you know. I made it into the engineering school, but the side note, you want to guess what college they allowed me in because they wouldn't let me in engineering day one. <laughs> Believe it or not, 
they let me in the College of Education of all schools. Uh-huh. I have nothing against my friends in education. I love them dearly. I think education is the freeing thing for everyone. Right. It puts you on a trajectory. But in my case, literally, it was the way into the school on probation. And then the next semester, I was in engineering. But boy, did I have to work hard. Because yeah. basically, I did high school all over again on my own at night sure. to catch up. Yeah. in math, sciences, and the physics so that you could pass the engineering courses. Right. And all that was because I wanted to be a pilot. Yeah. Well, now what <laughs> happened? Because you, you did you go into the military? I didn't see that in your background. I did. I was yeah. in the Air Force. And um, for the, the last two years at Texas Tech, uh, being in ROTC, you go to officer training in the summer uh, of your sophomore year. And then the last two years, your junior and senior year, you're technically a warrant officer. So and I did everything. Yeah. I was Air Force ROTC yeah. at Texas yeah. Tech. And I wound up a week before graduation, if you go back, pre-Desert Shield. Mm-hmm. If you remember that, it was 1987-88. Yeah. Uh, Bush one, And yeah. they had a RIF, a reduction in force in the military. We weren't going to get regular commissions. It was going to be a reserve commission. They said, hey, guys, we're having a RIF. So if you want to go interview with any of the companies – Go do it. I went out. I looked at at three companies, amazing companies, and then I compared what they were going to offer to what I was going to get in the military. Mm. And it's like, oh, my, I have an engineering degree. This is really valuable. And I looked at, wow, $30,000 a year versus maybe making 14,000-ish as an officer at the time. And I go, well, this is no brainer. I don't need, <laughs> so I didn't dumb. get my pilot slot. I wasn't even going to get my nav slot. So I wanted a second seat was going to be a navigator, but then I got an engineering slot, which was fine. I, it was going to be cool, but I tell you what, I interviewed with three companies, three amazing ones. UPS made me an offer and they said $30,000 a year. And I said, you got to be kidding me. That's how much you guys pay. Yes. And man, was that a life moving decision that I can look back now and say, wow, 10 years of my life at that company, amazing things happened across that period of time. Great mentors, some of the best that I hold in my life to this day and trained under one of the best systems that one could train under. Unbelievable. As an industrial engineer, you know, in UPS. Was UPS uh, 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 public at that time or were they still privately owned? Can you join them? They were privately owned and we had this, I still have it in my office. It's called the policy book, the UPS policy book. We used Mm. to quote it all the time. And uh, in that book, it would, you know, we're, you know, we're never going to be a public company. We're always going to be a private company. Of course, that's changed. (laughs) Um, I left before they went public. Uh, But the good thing is what a, what an amazing company. And then to finally go back and, and work and live in Seattle where the company was formed, as later in my career, as I went to work for Starbucks, you know, it was fascinating because I'd go down to that museum and, and see the Annie Casey Foundation and the museum and it's right there on Pioneer Square. You know, it's I have such fond memories and I hold a lot of my success in life to those early days at UPS and making that decision to the Air Force and then to, you know, UPS first job as an industrial engineer. Yeah. Uh, such good memories and, and such good training early on in your career. Tell us about two or three of those foundational learnings that you took away from your time, your, your decade at UPS. First and foremost, UPS is without question, and I'd say there's maybe Westinghouse back in the day, uh, 
and clearly UPS had this, this program where they taught you process. Hmm. So when I mean process, I'm talking about from A to Z, oh, a lot of people stuff. would look at that as TQM and, right. you know, uh, various Lean Six Sigma approaches, but UPS taught you how to deconstruct a work process. Hmm. And it, it really set the foundation for me. Second thing is, you know, learning to become an operator. Now, the operators at UPS always used to laugh at the engineers. They say, oh, you guys just, you know, still our watch and sell us back the time. And I'd say, well, you know, I do click the watch, you know, and, and set the standards, but you guys could never do our job. And I always used to tell them, you know, just give me a shot. Give me one shot and I'll prove to you that I can operate just as well as the operator. So one of my early mentors, Mike Hosfeld, uh, you know, uh, and a few others, Hank Kropchak and a few others, and a few district managers said, you know what, we'll give, we'll give you that opportunity. And uh, I went into my first UPS package center because they call it a package car. Right. And uh, these are the UPS trucks really as we look yeah. at them today, but that, they call them package cars. And I ran my first. Well, in the first year, I started with a small package center and then wound up getting two more added about a third of the state of New Mexico that I was operating. And in that, in that year, I was the most improved four quarters in a row hmm. at the quarterly, uh, you know, manager meeting and best every quarter. So most improved and best on three package centers in the state of New Mexico. And from that point forward, when I went back into engineering, uh, you never got any funny looks from that point on. It's like, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. So maybe we would listen to him and his team a little bit more. Yeah, fantastic. And then a little later on, you had about a decade with the Chiquita organization, or a little, little bit more than that, I think. Tell us a little bit about your experiences there. You know, you kind of moved into senior management, I believe, in that organization. And again, kind of two or three of the key learnings that you took away. Yeah, from I, you know, I, I'd had quite a bit of success post UPS as I made a couple of moves in between UPS and Chiquita. But as I arrived at, at Chiquita, it was my, you know, a, a true first multinational VP role. Right. And I went as VP supply chain strategy. I think the things that I, I learned at Chiquita that are most memorable and, and I'm forever thankful for is the fact that you never appreciate as much a multinational until you work in one that's truly multinational right. and it spans global supply chain. So I cut my chops on so much relative to understanding global supply chains and origin mm -hmm. countries in Central and South America and other parts of the world and I had so many great opportunities and I, I, I really went up to that point in my career, I was at probably 14, 15 years up to that point when I entered Chiquita and I'd worked hard, you know, where my contemporaries were working 40 hours a week, you know, I'd work 80 to hundred. Wow. And I'd say, if somebody else, you won't outwork me. So outwork, yeah, you might be smarter, but at the end of the day, that's not, that's not what really, you know, cuts it. It's, it's really execution. So I made it my, practice and my team's practice to really be good operators that could execute well. And I tell you, that served me so well. Uh, as I moved up through uh, Chiquita, there was a point where my mentor at the time, which was Wahid Zaman and our CEO, Fernando Aguirre at the time, I always made a reputation on over delivering, you know, mm -hmm. under promise, over deliver. And in that period of time with the team and I and really learning to manage people and getting the most out of people. It was a situation where 
I was able to uh, to just really set great operational numbers set forth. And I said, well, I want to learn more and be, I, I need to, to learn manufacturing because I grew up in logistics, both distribution right. and transportation. And I want to learn manufacturing and I want to learn how to run a business as a GM. So they would always give me little pieces that you couldn't really mess up, but then we would just set the world on fire. You know, you'd take a, a, a business that's making five million, it winds up when you finish, you turn in twenty five million adjusted EBITDA. You, you had a bottom line of, you know, close to fifty million, and you wind up in the end, it, it sets off one hundred and fifty million dollars. So, yeah. you know, it was always some of that, and then and then getting the great white fleet. When I left Jakita, I wound up ascending into the top job as the head of global supply chain, what we call product supply at the time. We had a lot of PNG influence there. And I was running the Great White Fleet, which was the largest U.S. flag carrier. I ran their controlled atmosphere division, which was called Transfresh, and had uh, the ingredient solution division, which was called uh, Chiquita Fruit Solutions. We rebranded and and ran that globally, along with running the entire global operations uh, for supply chain product supply from source all the way to consumption of bananas, pineapples, and other you know, tropical fruits. So right. I just got so many experiences and, and, and that really teaches you to work with multinationals and having, you know, true relationships and having those relationships really uh, turn out to be rewarding for the long term and how you rely on those relationships based on getting things done. Yeah. Now you went to Starbucks afterwards and I did, I got recruited out of Chiquita to go to Starbucks. Yeah. Now, was that um, when the founder came back or I'm trying to remember that? Yes. So Howard had already returned to Starbucks. I got a call. thought it was just absolutely a joke. I said, no, the recruiter can't be calling. It was on, you know, an in-mail through LinkedIn. Right. (laughs) And they had seen a bunch of the videos and other stuff that we had done, you know, leading uh, all the different aspects of Chiquito over the course of time. And when I found out it was real, it was right in the middle of a change between the prior CEO and the new CEO that was coming in. And I'd worked for him for right at a year. We made the transition to move the company to Charlotte, North Carolina, and everything was moving really well and um, got that call. And uh, I remember the day I went uh, to Starbucks to interview and you had all the top senior executives I'd read about because I read every one of Howard's books prior to going, you know, just right. did the homework like you can't imagine. Yeah. And I met all the folks. And of course, every meeting you had to drink coffee. Right. And they would do a coffee <laughs> tasting at the beginning of your right. meeting. Right. By the time I got to Howard, I saw an open slot in the afternoon. I think it was 2.30 to 3.30 and didn't have any name in it. And then as well, you know, DeVerl, you're, you're doing well with all these interviews. We're going to, uh, you know, I think you're going to wind up meeting Howard today. So. I went into the office and he it was really interesting. It was a really simple question he asked. He goes, Devereux, if I broke, he goes, I'm, I don't know anything about your world, Devereux, but I, I do know enough to know that if, if you think about manufacturing, transportation, distribution, procurement, which one are you the best at and why? And he just asked it in that form. Yeah. And so I went down this path and, you know, he goes, it's, it's weird, Devereux. I, I do a lot of these interviews, but it's weird when my whole team says they, they really liked this guy. And yeah. so that meeting was amazing because, of course, he was the fact that he had came back and he was really trying to move things forward and which he did. It was just truly, truly a pleasure to, to work on that executive team. Um, 
and work uh, at the management committee level and, and working with that team. It was just a, a storyboard of top executives from around the world. Of course, every executive that was on the management committee was was amazing. And I learned a tremendous amount during that time. So yeah. that that day of that interview was just I, I look back on it and think about it. I actually wrote a wrote about a three page letter on the way home that night on the plane just to remember and, and encapsulize all the things that that day meant and how the culture was so different right, right. than anything I'd experienced in my life. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, after a, a, a couple of other moves, you're, you're still in the coffee business. So, so tell us about how Farmer Brothers came along and, and, you know, give us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of the company. I know they've been around since. Oh, sure. I think it, from a standpoint of um, back in coffee, I really think I never really left produce. Now, coffee is a plant and it grows on a a coffee bush. And at the end of the day, you know, I've I've really grown up in tropical fruits, leafy greens, and now coffee twice. Right. And so Farmer Brothers is 110 this year. Amazing. Uh, they start out in Torrance and they've acquired a lot of different companies over the years. And I evaluated the company over about three months prior to joining and really saw it as an opportunity. They had moved the company from Torrance to Dallas-Fort Worth to reset and, and build a new manufacturing facility and uh, bring the team out. And right. what, what does Farmers do? It, it really has two distribution components to it. It's a classic direct store delivery model up and down the street, 50,000 accounts thereabouts that they serve that are your favorite breakfast, lunch, and brunch locations where coffee, tea, and spice are served and other culinary products. And they do that through the DSD. That's about a third of the volume of coffee that's sold. Wow. Two thirds of the volume of coffee that's sold is in the area of what we call national accounts or direct ship. And that's your big QSRs, your big convenience stores, big grocery retailers. And we do both branded and private label products. We, our biggest branded product was when we acquired Boyd's Coffee. Mm-hmm. And Boyd's is, is the probably the third oldest coffee company in America out of Portland. And that was acquired before I joined and we integrated that. And we have a lot of other brands from Metropolitan to Superior to Cane's to public domain and uh, of course, Farmer Brothers, which is core of the DSD network that we deliver across all states in the lower 48 today. Yeah, sweet. And uh, you know, you've been there, I guess, coming up on three years, two and a half years now. Yeah, two and a half. Yeah, and that's your, your obviously your first CEO position. Tell, tell me a little bit about kind of your leadership arc and you know, what's changed over the years, you know? Going yeah, well, it's the second, years. it's my second CEO position, the yeah. first publicly traded. First publicly traded, right. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, I will, I will tell you that in both turnarounds, my second big turnaround, and in the first turnaround, you know, we wound up, it was a Danone company and it was a, uh, part of White Wave that White Wave was purchased by Danone. And this was the earthbound uh, company within that White Wave division and then under Danone. And we did that in 18 months and had a lot of success in that and turning around a more than negative 50 million adjusted EBITDA and got it back to break even pass flow and then sold it to the largest strategic in that particular sector. And then I was just kind of floating along and deciding what I wanted to do next. And then here we go opportunity to get back into coffee and um, that leadership arc. I think once you have that one first 
even though I'd done turnarounds within multinationals, never a turnaround per se in fully leading a division or company like Earthbound. So that gave me a lot of credibility. And as I met with the board and, and really talked to them about what's the opportunity, I felt like I was just talking about another similar mm. story that I'd lived before. And I obviously had the, the knowledge of coffee, the knowledge of DSD from my days at Pepsi, my days at Chiquita with the, some DSD that we had there. And things just seemed to fit. And I was excited about getting back into coffee because once you go into coffee, you get very passionate. And, and there's such a storied history here at Farmer Brothers uh, in regards to, you know, all things coffee. And I was just excited to, to get back into an arena that I felt like I could really make a difference and had all the elements that you would want in a story. And I think I knew that prior to joining and then who knew we were going to get COVID to make a turnaround probably a thousand times harder than what it should have been. But the really good success is the frontline folks here at Farmer Brothers just connecting to their hearts and minds and their passion and reigniting that. We've been able to, as I tell the team, you know, it's like a raging river and you got to get from one side to the other. And I say, it's not if we'll make it to the other side. I'm just not sure what shape we'll be when we get to the other side of the post-COVID world, but yeah. we're there and we've survived and people are still amazed at some of the work we've done and, and how we've done it through one of the more challenging, difficult times in, in maybe world history. Yeah, no worries. And, you know, you, you kind of allude to culture when you when you answer that question. How do you how do you do that or how did you do that over this last 18 months? Because you joined just about six months before the pandemic hit. Exactly. And, uh, you know, company culture is so important. And, you know, the CEO really kind of carries the flag on that. Was that difficult during that period of time? I would say it's it's incredibly difficult. It has to be your first priority. And I, I always I told the board this day one, it, it will be it will start with culture and in with culture or better yet, it will start with people and in with people first. Yeah. And importantly about that aspect is the fact that you got to win the hearts and minds. And it's not just good enough to have a mission and vision statement, but you really need a purpose statement. Now that's what I learned from, from Starbucks and, and remember many executive offsites and many conversations, you know, wow, they do that so well. I'm so impressed with, what has been done over the years there and, and the learnings I was fortunate enough to, to take part in during my time there. So I said, we got to do the same. I did that at, at, at Earthbound. That was one of the things we had to rekindle. That was a 35 year old company that started literally the organic industry. And I was trying to resurrect that from having gone through a lot of difficult times and you got to respect the history. And, and I did the same here at Farmer Brothers. And as we got into it, I said, we got to go to the front line. We got to understand what what is it that makes us who we are? Like, what's our purpose for being? It's not just making money. And believe it or not, uh, the front line led us to the answer. And even to this day, COVID has been difficult to getting that message fully, you know, engaged and trained and really living it. But it's there. And it really is uh, cultivating connections through our love of coffee. Mm. You say such a simple statement. It has mm. to be right. Okay. If you're going to engage the hearts and minds of, of your, your front line, it's got to come from them. Yeah. And, and we landed on that. And when we landed on that cultivating connections, because we do cultivate coffee, right. but we also cultivate connections. And where do you cultivate? I would argue that everybody in life, no matter who you are, that 
Probably some of the most important and meaningful conversations you've ever had was around your kitchen table over a cup of coffee in That's the morning right, or, a meal. Yeah. or a meal. And it's around a beverage and it's either around a, a glass of iced tea yeah. or hot cup of coffee of your choice. Yeah. And it's so representative when you get into the depths of what we were trying to tap into because our customers and then their customers, which are consumers, they do that in these engagements and they love our frontline route service representatives and service techs. Yeah. And these RSRs, as we call them, are service techs. You know, they're the lifeblood of our company. Right. And it's just engaging them and, and giving them a reason to believe. Pandemic didn't help because we had to furlough a lot of those folks. We've been working hard to get them all back yeah. um, at the front line and, and keep the company moving. And that's always a challenge because I think you always have this cultural challenge of the folks that are functional, that support the business, really as I learned at Pepsi, it was always about right side up, right? The CEO is that it's not the pyramid up, but you flip the pyramid and the most important people are the ones at the front. And I learned that at an early, you know, period of my career. And I've never forgotten that, you know, right side up concept and try to leave that, live that from a servant leadership perspective as much as one can. And the pandemic's made it tough and you got to react to that. But I think that's a component that got us through and, Gave us a reason to believe and, and engage the hearts and minds and win those hearts and minds. I love it. What do you personally look for when you uh, are making bets on the people you invest in and hire at Farmer Brothers? It really is their leadership, but that's that's easy, right? <laughs> at least saying it. But it's really trust, trust mm-hmm. and teamwork. And, and, and I look at trust and really go deep into what are the elements that create trust. And some are easier to identify than others, but... Uh, one of my mentors, um, Tim Stratman, who's been a coach of mine for many, many years, probably almost coming up on 20 years. And he taught me this way back when, probably one of the first years we were together. He said, Deverell, you, you look at trust and you ask yourself, what are the components of trust? Well, it's competency, which, you know, most people can figure competency element. It's it's willingness to do the job. That's not too hard to do either. You can, right. you can determine if people want to do what needs to be done and they can work together as a team. And then the third one is the hard one and that's loyalty mm-hmm. and loyalty, willingness to job and competency together equal trust. And the speed of trust is everything. And I've had it happen a few times. We're getting very close here at Farmer Brothers to crack that. But for those that know what I'm talking about and have had that level of trust at the most senior level, where you really do have that person's back no matter what happens. And when the worst of the worst breaks out, trust is what holds it together yeah. and the respect of that. So I really try to test for trust in lots of ways in the interview process. And I think the team that's here today will suffice it to say that they know that's a part of who we are and they understand those elements and they understand, you know, uh, their competencies and, and their their focus on their personal energy and their life balance and that the one person, they don't split themselves between, you know, what they do away from work and who they are at work. Cause we do spend a disproportionate amount of our, our lives at work. And, and they understand that. Yeah. Cool. Well, Deverell, we're just about out of time, but I do have one last question. We always ask all our guests and that's kind of what kind of career and life advice you'd give someone who maybe is mid career. And, you know, maybe like you has spent eight to 10 years at a couple of big companies, but they've got their eyes on the corner office. What would you tell them to uh, 
to do to, you know, help them along their way to get there? Yeah, I, this is a great question. And here, here's what I tell everybody. And uh, for those that know me well, and that we get to this level of conversation, I say, you know, it's all about mind, body, and spirit. And you can't mm. separate those. Yeah. And more importantly, stay balanced, stay commitment. You know, stay balanced and stay committed. And you're one person and you don't split that reality of what you do at work versus what you do in your personal life. And you've got to focus on what you can control because control is an illusion. Mm. And I've learned as an engineer and an ops person and, you know, all the things I've done in my career that early on, I thought everything was about control. Well, you just have to control it. Well, you learn quickly that control is an illusion and you can control everything within about six feet, three feet, one way or the other. And that means you can can control yourself. (laughs) Nobody else. I cannot convince you to do anything you don't want to do. And I think what what that comes through is this this kind of simple kind of view that I've taught my my kids and and they know these is is mind, body, spirit, stay balanced, stay committed Mm -hmm. and, you know, work hard. Uh, And I do believe that that does go a long way. Uh, And you don't always have to be the smartest, but you definitely definitely have to put the smartest people around you and don't ever fear hiring somebody smarter than you, period. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Deverell Mezarang, President and CEO of Farmer Brothers, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.